grateful to be here tonight and um, the opportunity to hear the lesson we just heard and to try to present a lesson before you t today. Uh, when Brother Casey called me with the uh, lesson and um, last year he called and he said, uh, he asked me to teach and before he told me what my lesson was, he said, never heard anybody teach on this subject in my whole life. Sound a little scary. To be honest, I've never heard anybody preach from this book my whole life. And it was Obadiah. And um, I thought that was as low as he was going to go. And then he called me this year with this lesson. And uh, I asked him if this was from Lord of the Rings or from the Bible. I had never heard of this name before. And... Uh, I had to translate it from Hebrew to Macon County and from Macon County to English whenever he explained the name of it to me. Uh, so I don't, uh, I don't have a good, I don't know that I'm going to pronounce it correctly through the night, but I'm going to do what Brother Moran did. I'll stay consistent pronouncing it wrong if I'm pronouncing it wrong, okay? <laughs> and so we'll be go ahead and, and begin our lesson tonight. And... Um, the title of our lesson is The Daughters of Zelophehad, and I'm going to try to tell you the story as clearly as I understand it. Reading some passages on our outline, there's uh, the passages we're going to read are, are going to be already located there. Tell you some of the qualities that these women demonstrated, and then after that, we're going to kind of tackle a a topic adjacent to this topic. So I think you'll understand more why it is directly linked to this topic. Uh, but as I was laying in bed one night thinking about this lesson, this thought that I'm going to try to bring before you in the latter half of our lesson is um, was in my heart, and uh, it has to do with the modern feminist movement. So I'm telling you to stay awake until we get there, okay? Um, and so we'll go ahead and begin tonight. Our introduction, it reads this, if this is your first time hearing of the daughters of Zelophehad, you're in good company. The story describing their actions is brief and snugly tucked in the middle chapters of the Pentateuch. Though worthy of consideration, these unsung women of the Old Testament do not deserve a place alongside the saints of Hebrew 11, nor do they deserve the attention given to other well-known women of the Bible or the scriptures. For that matter, the women selected for the series of studies all lack the overall renown that other women in the scriptures have. Each of them, with a few exceptions, exemplify a number of admirable qualities which we should emulate. But overall, very little is known about them. Initially, I found this fact challenging, but after further prayer and study, the Lord revealed something about these women, or about how I view these women, which revealed a lot about me. And I hope to communicate that tonight. So, we're going to jump into the book of Numbers, the first time that we read about these women. And if you'll look at the text that we have there of the scriptures in Numbers 27, it gives the five daughters of Zelophehad, Mela, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Tirzah. And so what is about to transpire historically is that this is coming to the end of Moses' time as the leader of Israel. He is attempting, and the book of Numbers begins about one year after they had gotten to Sinai, and so they're wanting to make a journey to the promised land. And we know that because of their faithlessness and their rebellion against God, that God caused them to wander in 
the wilderness for 40 years. As we come to, towards the end of Numbers, we're getting closer to the promised land. And so Moses is responsible for preparing the people. He's given to them a law. Of course, not only a religious or ceremonial law, but he's also delivered to them a civil law, whereby they were to act and function while they were there. And so when you get into the book of Leviticus and the book of Numbers, sometimes to us it gets dry because... It's about the civil law, and none of us pick up the American civil law for fun and read it, and that's perhaps why we don't find too much alluring about this law. However, the story, the heart of this story involves the inaugural inheritance laws. Now, these inheritance laws are going to be far different than the inheritance laws that we have today. They're far more extensive, not in description, but in their magnitude, or how long they're going to last. And so, We're going to read beginning, and I've tried to bold the parts that we're going to read uh, on our text. So we'll begin in Numbers chapter 27 and begin in verse 3. And this kind of leads to the story or tells the story of these ladies and where they first come into play. So they're standing before Moses and Eleazar the priest. And they're bringing a case before them for their consideration. And so it says this, Our father died in the wilderness, and he was not in the company of them that gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah, but died in his own sin and had no sons. Why should the name of our father be done away from among his family, because he hath no son? Give unto us, therefore, a possession among the brethren of our father. And Moses brought their cause before the Lord. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, The daughters of Zelophehad speak right. Thou shalt surely give them a possession of an inheritance among their father's brethren, and thou shalt cause the inheritance of their father to pass unto them. Thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel, saying, If a man die and have no sons, then you shall cause his inheritance to pass unto his daughters. We'll pause there for just a moment. And so it's going to tell us if he has no daughters, where then it's supposed to pass along to. And so we're going to begin reading just at the bottom of page one some of our thoughts here. And make some comments. It says, As the children of Israel reached the edge of the promised land, Moses began to make arrangements for dividing it among the twelve tribes of Israel. In the previous chapter, he commissioned a census be taken, so that after the conquest of Canaan, Joshua and the elders could rightly divide the land among the tribes, and within each tribe they could allot a portion of the land to each family. This census was extremely important. The allotment of land distributed to each family would become their permanent property. Although they could lose ownership of the land temporarily, Every 50 years during the year of Jubilee, the land would be returned to the family who originally owned it. This ensured that every family and almost every generation of every family would be a partaker of the promise of God to Abraham. And so, really important things here. This is scripture that most likely to none of us, we don't really peruse and read to find strength. But I bet if your name or your family's name would have been found there, you would have read this scripture more than any other scripture in the Bible. Because it involved the inheritance that would be directly left to you. And we know the arrangements that God set up in Israel that we can read about in Leviticus. Both in those scriptures that we give there, verses 13 through 17. But then later in verses 23 through 28, that we learn of this thing called the year of Jubilee. And I don't have time to explain that tonight. But essentially what we try to record there is a brief description of it. That if for some reason your family became on hard times or... Some other cause, perhaps some legal actions were taken against you and you lost your property rights. And that had obviously an effect for generations from that point forward. And so every 50 years, there was a sort of reset. 
that the family who had originally been given this property would have it returned to them on the 50th year. So these ladies are coming with a concern that is really important. It's not just about them. It's not, and we'll get into here in a minute, their motivations behind why they're doing this. But this is something that they're anticipating is going to affect their descendants until today, is what they think, forever, however long that's going to be. And so they bring this case. Moses brings it before the Lord. And um, the Lord is going to grant these rights to these daughters. And so let's keep reading here for just a moment. It says, The daughters of Zelophehad had arrived on the scene with a unique problem. In ancient times, inheritance rights were passed down through the male line. Since their father had no male offspring, his progeny would not receive an allotment in the promised land. Zelophehad was an honorable man in his generation who had simply failed to have a male heir. So his daughters believed his family should still be granted an inheritance in the land of promise. They are evidently permitted to bypass the lower courts in Israel and bring their concern directly to Moses and Eleazar the priest. So let's read that text beginning in verse 7 of that reading. It says this, The daughters of Zelophehad speak right. This is the Lord telling Moses this. Thou shalt surely give them a possession of an inheritance among their father's brethren. And thou shalt cause the inheritance of their father to pass unto them. And thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel, saying, If a man die and have no son, then ye shall cause his inheritances to pass unto his daughters. Let's read our commentary here for just a moment. It says, Supposing the matter to be settled, Moses proclaimed God's decree and continues preparing the children of Israel to enter the promised land. So, basically, he gives this judgment. He has no sons, and the daughters can inherit the property. And then ten chapters or nine chapters later, the very last chapter of the book of Numbers, the tribe from where Zelophehad was from, the tribe of Manasseh, realizes there's going to be a, an unexpected problem or an unintended consequence to this law. Because what would happen is, if somebody from the tribe of Manasseh was to say marry someone from the tribe of Reuben and they were to have a son, he would be considered a Reubenite. Well, when he inherited the land, he would technically be inheriting some of Manasseh's property, the tribe of Manasseh. And so over time, the more intermarrying among the tribes, the more that the allotment of land for each tribe could get messed up. And of course, what we could also know is that then people could be conniving. Tribes could set up and plot to take other tribes' inheritances so that even at the year of Jubilee, when all of this is reset, it's still reset to this new tribe that inherited the land. And so the tribe of Manasseh comes and they bring this problem before Moses and they say, what do we do? We don't feel like this is, we obviously don't have a problem with the daughters inheriting this land, but it does create unintended consequences. And so... We read uh, a little later on, if you'll turn the page to page 3, Moses gives a response to this problem in the latter half of Numbers. And we're just going to read a few things of this here. It says, And if they be married to any of the sons of the other tribes of the children of Israel, then shall their inheritance be taken from the inheritance of their father, or our fathers, and shall be put into the inheritance of the tribe whereunto they are received. So shall it take, excuse me, so shall it be taken from the lot of our inheritance. And when the jubilee of the children of Israel shall be, then shall their inheritance be put into the inheritance of the tribe whereunto they are received. So shall their inheritance be taken away from the inheritance of the tribe of our fathers. So that's the elders of Manasseh bringing the problem to Moses. 
And in verse 6, um, Moses gives an answer to this problem. This is the thing which the Lord doth command concerning the daughters of Zelophehad, saying, Let them marry to whom they think best, only to the family of the tribe of their fathers shall they marry. So shall not the inheritance of the children of Israel remove from tribe to tribe, for every one of the children of Israel shall keep himself to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. And every daughter that possesses an inheritance in any tribe of the children of Israel shall be wife unto one of the family of the tribe of her father, that the children of Israel may enjoy every man the inheritance of his father. So God gives an additional command. And he said, and I initially misunderstood this, um, but what God has commanded here then is that if a woman, if the daughter is going to inherit the property, that she needs to marry someone within the tribe. Thus, it would be passed down within the tribe that the promises of God could always be enjoyed forever based proportionally on what God had originally granted to that tribe. And so we learn about these women in verse 12 that each of them followed that commandment. They obeyed the Lord. They inherited the land because they married someone within their tribe. And so kind of in brief summary of the story here, there's three points that we'll point out that these laws clarify. If a man has no male heirs, then let his daughters inherit the land. Number two, for a daughter to retain her inheritance, she was required to marry someone within her father's tribe. This ensured that the land given to each tribe would remain the property of that tribe forever. And finally, if a daughter chose to marry outside her father's tribe, then the land would be given to the next male heir. So we want to look at for just a few moments the things that we learn from these ladies. And there's a lot of things that we didn't read for time's sake here. But there's three really big things that we want to look at about lessons that we can glean or, or character qualities we can glean from these ladies. And the first one is one that we're going to bring back around here in a few moments, and it involves their motivation. Um, today, I was surprised to learn that there is actually a liberal Christian activist group called the Daughters of Zelophehad, and they claim themselves to be the first feminists, um, and that the Daughters of Zelophehad were that in the Bible, and that, of course, now they go on all these crusades in order to supposedly empower women's rights today, both in America and around the world. But what we find from the actual story, if you read it, is that the motivation of these women were crystal clear. They did not come before Moses and say, this isn't fair. Women have just as many rights as men. They didn't do that. They come with this motivation. They say, our father was an honorable man. He was not one like the sons of Korah. And if you read in the book of Numbers, chapter 16 and 17, we find that there was a rebellious group of men who thought that Moses and Aaron were taking upon themselves too much authority. And Moses, when he responds to them, really gets to the reason why they rebelled. And that was because they were Levites, but they were not content with the authority God had given them. In addition to being a Levite and helping with the priestly duties, really what they were aiming for was Aaron's control. They wanted to be within the high priest. Work. They wanted to do those things where they had more power and control. And when they were denied that right, they begin to complain and they bring out a rebellion against Moses and say, who are the two of you to lead all of us? Now, 
I don't know, if I'd seen a man bring ten plagues among Egypt and see somebody split the Red Sea, I would think that God has given him the authority, don't you? And yet, those signs that God clearly demonstrated through Moses was not sufficient for them to submit themselves to the will of God. And yet, what we find, the description that is actually given about the Uh, about Zelophehad, whenever they bring their case, they say, listen, our father died because of his own sins. And all that means is he died like the rest of us. He was not one that tried to claim power or have some uh, uh, ulterior motive, but he was a good man. But why is it the implications of this ruling of inaugural inheritance laws, if a daughter cannot inherit that land, especially in the first generation, then our father and all of his descendants forever will be forgotten. And they just couldn't live with that. And so they come and they appeal to Moses. And what does God say? They're right. They're right. Let this be the reason. Now, what's going to happen here is that, remember, these are obviously grown women. We don't know what their ages are, but they're obviously grown women appealing to the court. And we know what's ahead of them before they can be beneficiaries of the promise is basically the book of Joshua. They have to go and make that conquest. And so if they're already, and this is just a hypothetical all throughout to you, if they're already around 25 or 30 years of age, and it's going to take a number of years to complete the conquest, by the time that they get to that property and it is distributed among them, they're not going to have much time to enjoy the fruits of their labor. And so their motivation is very clear. It's twofold. I want to honor the generation which has come before me, and I want to benefit the generation which comes after me. What a motivation. One that we can learn greatly from, right? It's not about me. I want to honor those who are above me. I want to listen to them. I want to obey them. I want to give honor where honor is due. That as the lesson that was brought before us, if my father is walking in the right path, I'm going to follow him. And I want to make the spiritual path of those who come after me as fruitful as possible. I want them to be able to inherit something that was a product of the work that we did as a generation. And so their motivation is crystal clear. It has nothing to do with themselves which is kind of the antithesis of the feminist movement today. The second thing, they're women of faith. They're doing all this for a land that Israel doesn't even own yet. Now, this was an interesting point to notice here, okay? If you look at on page four on the second paragraph, I'm going to read just a brief part of this here. It says this, The daughter's initiative to bring the matter to Moses in anticipation of a successful conquest reveals a second notable thing about them. They're women of faith. The generation which raised them is used throughout the Bible as a faithless generation. Now look at all the biblical quotes associated with that, and I didn't use them all. So Moses' generation becomes this archetype throughout the whole Bible of what a generation is that is faithless. That God wants to give His promises... God has sufficiently proven himself over and over and over and over, and yet, on every turn, they're distrusting what God's motive is, 
They're not trusting that his provision will be sufficient. They're not trusting that he will protect them, that he'll give them strength. And so that generation becomes this archetype, this picture throughout all the Bible that all the prophets afterward, that Jesus afterward points back to and says, look at the faithlessness of those people. And yet one of the, I'll say from my vantage point, strange things to understand is that this faithless generation produces perhaps the most faithful generation in the whole Old Testament. That as you read the book of Joshua, it is astounding at the very little evidence God had to give them for them to willingly and courageously march into the promised land and be willing to take over what it was that God had promised them. And we see with this that they, had, they were doing this in anticipation. They didn't even need to be in the land. They didn't even need to see the land. All they needed to know, God's promised us a place. And as long as God's promised it, I know it's going to happen. And so we better get it settled right now what those inaugural inheritance laws are because we're just on the cusp of receiving them. So they're definitely women of faith. Um, and and I'm not, I don't have much time to get more than that. And the final thing that we'll say, a third thing that we'll say about these women is that they're visionaries. Or in other words, they're not captive to the experience of their own life. And I want to pause for just a moment and, and, and really try to impress this upon you as an individual in regards to something these women leave behind. We can be captives of right here and right now in our generation. And we can be so narrowly focused upon really what would be my lifetime. Wherever you anticipate down the road that you're going to be done, that period of time. And so these women are, have experienced leaving Egypt and all the excitement that went on in Exodus in regards to that. They've gone to Mount Sinai, all the excitement that, that happened at Mount Sinai. And if you're a Bible reader, you know what I just described is about 15 lifetimes of excitement that took place in just a couple of years of their life. And then they go into the wilderness and there's battles and there's all these events and then they have this command that God gives them, you're going to go and you're going to be responsible for fighting. It's going to be war. And they're what the other, uh, the 12 spies, 10 of them came back and they said, there's giants there. And so all of these things had the potential to clutter their minds and get them focused on the here and now. And yet their minds were focused on the promise being fulfilled of God. They were thinking ahead. They were seeing things that, and so here's what I got written here. It's the, the paragraph, the second to last paragraph on this fourth page. It says this, and I'm reading it because I can't say it as well as, as I've written it here. It says this, finally, these women are visionaries, undistracted by their immediate circumstances in the wilderness of the forthcoming battles, which would later define their generation. These women looked beyond their lives to ensure their descendants would reap the promises of God. We should likewise seek to have hearts that burn with the urgency of the last hour while also preparing for the possibility that God will delay his coming for a thousand years. Be urgent in spirit, but preparatory in action. And I think we have to really be mindful of that. 
There's, a, there's an attitude that's floating around that because things have gotten so bad in America in the last couple of years, God has just got to come back in the next year or two. And anybody who believes that, you've got to go back and read history and realize this is a pretty good time to live in, although it's the worst time we've ever lived in. God could go on another, the world could go on another 10,000 years. We don't know it. And so I want to preach the truth of the gospel that God can come back at any moment. And I know that. But I'm also not going to be naive enough to think that God can't use me now to plant seeds that will be begotten 150, 200 years from now. Like we're recording this tonight. What are the chances that 500 years from now somebody might pull up this audio and listen to it? There's a possibility of it, isn't there? And so does it not make us more vigilant that the things we're doing now, though we're not being received very well by the culture we live in, Perhaps down the road there's going to be a great awakening. That's the catalyst of that is going back to the old paths, which are right now, 500 years ago, and uncovering these truths that have been lost, that were delivered on a platter that nobody in our American culture appreciated today, but 500 years from now they might appreciate an awful lot. My point is we don't know. These women didn't know. But they had heart. God, whatever you want us to do, we want to be faithful. We want to believe. And so, again, to summarize just briefly, these women, their motivation is crystal clear. It's for the welfare of others. They have their women of faith because everything they're doing is an anticipation for the future, and they're women who are visionaries. They're not constrained or confined by the thought of their own life. What I really want to talk about for just a few moments, and I've got about 15 to 20 minutes to do that, is what this story is not about. And this one's really heavy on my heart, and if you're a young person today, I hope you'll listen, because it's really about this feminist movement that exists today, which is not about women, and it's not about anything the Bible is trying to establish. And I think very often we're afraid to talk about something like this because we assume that God is somehow throughout the Scriptures a misogynist. He's not. This story has nothing to do with women's equal rights or that women be treated fairly. I'm not saying God doesn't want women treated fairly. All I'm saying is this story is nothing about that. Okay? Now, I think that's really important because what it reveals, why do we read that into the story? Why, when we read a story in the Bible about women being treated well, we feel the need to say, you see, God loves women. Is it perhaps that there may exist a subconscious bias within us that thinks God's views on women need to be vindicated? That maybe the culture has screamed at us for so long that the Bible is this oppressive book towards women that we know we don't believe the heart of it, but there's a few things we have a hard time explaining, and thus we probably need to vindicate God about it. And I want to deal with that for just a moment. So what this story is not about, page four, the bottom of the page. What may be of greater importance is what the story is not about. The story of Zelophehad's daughters is not about gender equality or how God values women. To read that into the text is to distort the intent of God's word. But what causes us to do that? 
Why do well-meaning Christians use every positive interaction between God and a woman as evidence of his affection for women? Why are pastors so afraid to teach that men are the head of the household and women are commanded to submit to their husbands? What do we lose when we reorient the intent of a biblical text to address the ideologies of mainstream culture? If we assume that God's response to Zelophehad's daughters is primarily aimed at demonstrating his affection for women, then we, in a sense, reveal our own belief that God's views on women need to be vindicated, or that at some previous point in the Bible, God has shown favoritism towards men and disdain for women. But that is far from the case. So I want to address for just a moment, and it's going to be real short. It deserves a lot more of attention than this. God's view on gender, okay? And, and again, I'm going to read some of these things because I just don't think I can say it as precisely as that I, I wrote it here. God's actions regarding gender are not about value, but about order. This is really important. God values women and men exactly the same. Women, you are not beneath a man's um, value in the eyes of God. Not even a little bit. And if somebody doesn't believe that, then you're going to overturn one of the greatest doctrinal truths in all the Bible. And that is the doctrine of the Trinity. Because the doctrine of the Trinity reveals something. Now, I want to say this. This is something that one day I was teaching my boys, and this just... Out of nowhere, as we were talking about something, one of my boys got an attitude a little bit, and, and there had been a, a, just a little bit of a wedge growing between us. Just, you know how it is, you'll go a couple weeks, and there's just a little tension in your house, and, and I've been trying to cross that tension a little bit. And man, it's like the Lord just opened something up, and it was this. Satan's primary goal is always to divide what God wants to make one. Always. So in the very beginning, when God had made Adam and Eve, and when God had made Adam, and, and they were walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and Eve are in perfect harmony, and God and Adam and Eve and, and, and God are in perfect harmony, everything is perfect. You see Satan coming in there, and what is he trying to do? Divide everybody. God against Adam, and Adam against God, and Adam against Eve, and Eve against God, and everybody's against each other. And that's what Satan is always trying to do. And I said to my son, I said, listen, I want you to understand something. Satan is trying to divide us. He's always actively trying to divide us. I don't want us to be divided. If I'm doing something wrong, I will confess that to you and repent of that sin and try to make it right because God does not want us to be divided. And I would say the same thing about men and women today. Our culture at the behest of Satan is trying to divide what God made one flesh. My wife and I are one flesh. We're two persons, but we're one flesh. And there is a pattern for that. God is the pattern for that. He is one God and yet three persons to God. And so we're going to keep reading here for this for a moment. It says this, this arrangement is patterned after a divine arrangement found within the persons of the Trinity. The Bible reveals God is one God, but composed of three independent persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each person of the Trinity is as equally valuable and powerful as the others, but two are willingly submissive to the will of one. 
Just as Jesus' submission to the will of the Father was an example of submitting to God's order, so a woman's submission to her husband is emblematic of obedience to God's design. If you didn't understand that, please go back and read it. Please go back and understand this. When the Bible in Ephesians chapter 5 says for wives to submit to their husbands, it's not because they're less intelligent. It's not because they're less useful to God. It's not because they're less valuable. It has nothing. When a woman submits to her husband, she is proclaiming in her life the same submission that Jesus and the Holy Spirit do to the Father in that she is submitting to the order of God. And so when a husband is ordering things for a goal beyond himself, and isn't that what God did? Like, isn't the plan of redemption more than just about some selfish satisfaction? Here. and I'm going to read it, and I'm going to make a comment about it. I'm going to continue here. It says this. So why do we see... The submission of Jesus to the Father is just and admirable, worthy of our emulation, but the submission of a wife to her husband as oppressive and worthy of our rebellion. We can't have it both ways. We can't. Both of them were designed of God. And so, it is... is, The thought that came to my mind whenever I wrote this was John 13. I cannot think of a a, a scripture that is more humbling to read than Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And listen, when he's down there washing their feet, he's doing that because it was the will of God that he do that. That's what he prays later on. He says, I've done everything that you gave me to do. And so it was the will of the Father that the Son, and it tells us this in Philippians chapter 2. It says, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus who uh, thought it not robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation. And that's not a, a good translation. It should say something like this. Counted equality with God a thing that should not be grasped. Other words, here's what it means. That's an important translational error in the, in the King James because what it means is this. He was equal with God, but he was willing to be submissive in position to God because it was worth completing the will of God to do so. You ever hear somebody say that's beneath me? Jesus never said that. He never said it was beneath him. Wives, submitting to your husband is not beneath you. It's the will of God. And it is a display of of the message of the gospel. I tend to believe, and I can't get off on this because I'm going to go over time already for just a minute, that the the key purpose of marriage to begin with is to reflect Christ in his church to begin with. Trust me, there's a lot of pragmatic benefits to it, and we can talk about how homosexuality does not meet those things, but I think the first thing that homosexuality fails to meet is the reflection of the gospel to the lost world. I think that's what marriage was always intended to be from the very beginning is a reflection of the gospel message. So God created this. Um, 
Let's look at the, at the second to last paragraph. I'm skipping some things that I'd really like to do, but I just don't have time. It says this. The modern feminist movement actively seeks to eliminate, eliminate any distinction between men and women, thereby destroying God's design. They have largely succeeded in our nation, churches, and homes, and the corrosive results are self-evident. These satanic agendas will continue to succeed if we permit them to subconsciously guide our interpretation of Scripture by making every Bible story involving a woman about gender equality. What I'm trying to say is um, we don't want to put on the lens of our culture and interpret the Bible through that lens. Make it say something it's not trying to say. And I want to I read these last few things, and I'm going to be done. It says this, The story of Zelophehad's daughters exists within a much broader framework than the hollow gender ideologies of 21st century America, and it proves more than God's love for women. The true value of this story, of any story within the biblical narrative, is clear when we see through the larger framework of redemptive history. But if we manipulate the story of David and Goliath to be about an individual overcoming the giants in their life, or the story of Mary and Joseph traveling to Egypt to be about immigrants seeking political asylum, or the story of Zelophehad's daughters to be about God's desire to treat women fairly, then we will miss the correct and significantly deeper meaning God reveals in these stories. The proclivity of American Christian culture. Please hear this. American Christian culture. Technically, we're a part of that. Okay, And it's a lot broader than us, but technically we fit within that sphere. Our proclivity to reimagine every Bible story to a man-centered theme focused on individualism and self-actualization is dangerous. The pride-crushing truth is that the story of your life is not really about you. It is merely the canvas upon which God desires to reveal His glory and His presence. Now, I want to really emphasize this point because I think it's, it'll make a huge difference in reading the Bible, and it's a very simple difference. I personally don't like devotionals, like the ones that are produced at the Christian bookstore that you can get, okay? One of the reasons is because it's usually designed to be about your feelings about yourself. And if our self-assurances about our esteem and our value and have to be given to us by all these people, and when we pick up the Bible, what we're looking for is to reaffirm self and our value as a man or as a woman, as a child, whatever the situation is. But it ends up being me-centered from the pulpit. This is really important to think about as a preacher. Do we always, when we preach, try to bring it back to why this should matter to their life? That's a dangerous thing to do because then what it says subconsciously is, my preaching is to, about you and how you ought to live. And The Bible is not to be read this way. The story of David and Goliath is not about us conquering giants in our life. It's about Jesus Christ conquering death. That all men can be ready to face that giant knowing that he has been conquered and that all they have to do is run across the line and enjoy the spoils. You see, it's Christ-centered. It's not us-centered. And yet, movies, Christian movies are made and all these things, and I think we're so desperate to see 
godliness in our nation that will even take a distortion of God's word because we're so eager for it. No, because then all we're doing is falling for what Satan wants us to fall for. And that is all of this is about us. It's not about us. Your life is about him. My life is about him. And what if my life's lot is to be oppressed for the rest of my life and in my oppression, God's glory could resound to everyone? I mean, isn't that kind of the description of Jesus' life? (laughs) Right? He was prophesied to be what? Oppressed. And he was. And yet it was through him being made poor that we're made rich. Let's keep reading for a moment. If he makes you a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord, the paraplegic son of a fallen king, a no-name maiden of an afflicted general, a poverty-stricken widow offering her last two mites, a blue-collar missionary in a barren field, an elderly grandmother who faithfully prays for her distant grandchildren, a weary-eyed homeschool mom striving to make her children disciples of Christ, or any other rarely celebrated but servant-hearted Christian who uses their life to exalt Christ, then eagerly take up your cross and follow him. I can't help but point out in that verse, it's a cross. It's a cross. And this, let's just keep reading and I'm going to be done. The unfolding of human history is ultimately aiming towards the eternal exaltation of the Father his son. So I really want to to, to emphasize this for just a moment. Everything that happens in this life, nothing small exempted, is headed towards one final aim. 1 Corinthians 15 gives us this very, very brief, we don't really know much about it, that I know of at least. You know, Revelation, it, it tells us about the judgment of Satan. It tells about the judgment of of uh, the lost that are going to be cast in it. It tells us about heaven. But 1 Corinthians 15 is this little snapshot of when all that is over. And then it says that the Son will offer to the Father everything that could be righted, that he might be all in all. See, everything in history is headed towards one thing. And that is there's going to come a moment where every sin has been punished. Everyone who has thought, the great men of the earth that have thought that they have thwarted God's plan are going to be judged and subdued. Every hidden secret will be uncovered. God will have made it all right. All the people who in this world were celebrated as the greatest Christian people. Didn't we learn about that not just too many months ago or years ago with Ravi Zacharias, a great Christian teacher. If you don't know who he was, he was this great Christian teacher that was celebrated from all over the world only to after his death learn that he was a a continual sex offender that had uh, taken advantage of many. And there are people like that, that they go their whole life and they're religious figures and they're exalted and they're worshipped by people. All the while, God knows the secrets of their heart. And on the day of judgment, all of that will be revealed and rectified. But when it all is, It's all done. I'll be there at this point. And the son, who we're going to worship for all of eternity, is going to turn to the father 
and all for all that has been righted for the Father's exaltation. That's what all this is about. And your insistence, my insistence that I'm oppressed and I'm a victim and men and women are unequal and God is, all that's going to be shown to be the buffoonery that it is. It's not. Our lives are aiming towards that end. Here's what I want to do. I want to get in line where it's a straight shot for me. You know? So in my, at home, our school day, I try to tell my boys, you know, the quickest way to get finished is a straight line. Right? But somehow, it's never a straight line, right? It always makes it to the kitchen for a snack, into the bathroom ten times, and out sometimes to their room to play basketball. It's never a straight line to finish. And so guess what? It takes us a really long time. I want my life to be just a beeline to the, the feet of the Father to worship Him. And everything in my life is already subdued, already surrendered. Here, every story within and without the Bible aids that theme. This includes all the hallmark stories which echo throughout our Sunday school classes as well as the seemingly obscure regulations in the Old Covenant regarding civil and domestic affairs which provided order to the nation of Israel. So what I'm trying to say here is even the obscure stories that don't make sense to us somehow aim towards him. If we strive to read the Bible through that lens, willing to engage but not subliminally reorient every story towards the culture wars of our day or the man-centric narratives of a Disney-esque movie, then we will discover something far more wonderful than we can imagine, the all-surpassing glory of an infinite God. We will conclude our lesson where it began. Just as the daughters of Zelophehad don't deserve extraordinary attention within the annals of biblical literature, neither is it likely that our lives will. But that isn't the point. Aiming for extraordinary acts of faith to elicit the praise of men are the bane of a true servant of Jesus Christ. The true goal of our lives is to be faithful. Zelophehad was honored because he remained faithful among a faithless generation. His daughters successfully reaped the fruits of Zelophehad's faithfulness and ensured that future generations would also be blessed by their courageous acts. Let us aim to understand God's word as he has directed it, to live courageously for the glory of God, and to heap upon future generations blessings for walking in our footsteps. I'll conclude. Our lesson tonight, I apologize for going a little over. I'd like to say amen. Appreciate the thoughts that the Lord laid on Brother Brad's heart and